Good evening and thanks for joining us. Getting around Vancouver's downtown core is a headache at the best of times, but some businesses on Burrard are fed up. They're telling Global News that delayed construction around the Burrard Street Bridge could put them out of business. Rumina Dea joins us with more on, the, on this, the impact, and why businesses feel it's been dragging on unnecessarily. Sophie, businesses in the area here, including this bike shop, are sick and tired of the bike lane construction. They say that it's taking too long. They say that it's critical that their customers are able to stop and shop. And that has become impossible because there is no parking. Businesses are open, but customers are being driven away. Everybody in this area is losing business because customers, even if they do get down here through the crazy traffic through all the construction, there's nowhere for them to, to park. The whole jacket lights up. 25 years in the bike business at Burrard and Pacific. Manager Bob Gifford says it's the first time the company has suffered monster losses at this location. And we've always seen a steady increase every year. This past year, we dropped back half a million dollars in sales. Frustrated business owners tell us construction of the road and bike lane network was supposed to complete eight months ago. Precious parking stalls reserved for construction held hostage by the city. They've got a whole area blocked off for no reason. And even their own site supervisor says there's no reason. You know what they look like? and then you're yeah. gonna For Carolyn Curry, two years of construction equals 50% of her dry cleaning business gone. No parking on Pacific, no parking on Hornby, no parking on... So you tell me how, how you're going to run your business. The city has a communications department of more than 30 people, but still no one was available to answer questions on camera. But we did receive an email a spokesperson blaming the snow and ice from last winter for the delays. We're completely for bike lanes. Believe me, we're a bike shop. Construction has to happen. We're not against progress. The big thing is the city's not listening to us, and that's the frustrating thing. Now, the city says it's now on track to complete construction in this area by February, but business owners are wondering what happens after that. There are several new towers going up in the area, so parking is going to continue to have an impact on those businesses. Sophie. All right, thanks for that. Ramina Dea in Vancouver tonight. Meantime, Vancouverites will be paying even more than expected in property taxes next year. Last month, the city proposed a 3.9% increase, but today, Vision Vancouver Councillor Raymond Louie proposed a further 0.34%, and it was passed in a 7-4 to vote. That means Vancouverites will face a total tax increase of 4.24%. The extra money will go toward Chinatown initiatives and housing. Well, now to another consequence of Vancouver's growth that's leading to more conflict, densification. Some residents are fighting a new proposal to turn a section of Vancouver's west side with big homes and even bigger yards into an area rezoned for much higher density. Nadia Stewart explains why neighbours don't want it. It is a Vancouver neighborhood known for its big lots, grand views, and soaring price tags. But to one NPA city councillor, West Point Gray is also ripe for rezoning with density in mind. These are football field size lots that really only allow mansions on them. And what has happened, unfortunately, though, is that they are sitting derelict. We have this grossly underutilized series of lands. 400 people live there, perhaps. It's right on the edge of UBC. Let's provide housing for students to either go to school 
or build housing for seniors looking to age in the neighborhood. Bremner is proposing diversity in the West Point Gray housing stock, allowing six-story multifamily buildings for rentals and social housing. Single-family homes would also still be allowed. The Coalition of Vancouver Neighborhoods says it is not often city councillors pitch motions like this. Not a motion which dictates and outlines uh, an entire rezoning for uh, a, por- a large portion of a, a certain specific neighborhood. Benj says this area also isn't conducive to the kind of housing being proposed. Sloping sidewalks aren't senior friendly. Expensive land and limited public transit can make it hard to get around. What's more, experts say cities can't simply rezone their way out of a housing crisis. Rezoning by itself doesn't create affordable housing. It doesn't create uh, neighborhoods that can move around in terms of non-car dependency. It's a it's a tool. But it isn't an outcome. Though rezoning is certainly something we will be hearing more about in the months to come, as it seems campaigning for the municipal election has at least unofficially already begun. Nadia Stewart, Global News. Gordy Hogue is the new MP for South Surrey White Rock. Hogue defeated Conservative candidate Carrie Lynn Findlay, ending the 64-year Liberal drought in that riding. And it was a strong Monday night for the federal Liberals all around, winning three out of four seats in by-elections across the country. Most couples with children struggle to find reliable childcare, and when they finally do, it's a struggle to afford it. Tanya Beja shows us how B.C. compares across the country and the length some parents say they're forced to go to in order to make it work. So why don't you go up the um, stairs here? Michelle Horan put her name on dozens of wait lists when she was looking for daycare that fit the family budget. When I was on maternity leave, everybody that I knew, all the other mothers, everybody, it was the biggest stressor. So it impacted all of our leaves. That's kind of all we talked about was finding affordable daycare, but that was also high quality. That search is more difficult in this province than nearly anywhere else. Three B.C. cities are among Canada's top five when it comes to priciest places for childcare. Vancouver comes second only to Toronto at nearly $1,300 a month. I had to go to Abbotsford and live three days a week with my in-laws so that I could afford daycare for my daughter. It shows that we do have a childcare crisis um, here in BC and um, that affordability is a very important part that our government has to work on. Childcare fees have increased nearly 10% in Vancouver since 2014. That's three times the rate of inflation. Even if you could afford those high fees, you can't necessarily get a space because in most places there are long wait lists. Last week, the provincial government announced $33 million for 3,800 new childcare spaces, but experts say we're still a long way from Quebec's model of universal childcare at affordable rates. We can't afford to wait any longer for the $10 a day childcare plan. We need to see the provincial budget commit to that and commit to an ambitious but reasonable implementation plan over the next several years. It is coming. It is coming. We know that the change cannot happen fast enough for many parents. Details of how the government plans to address the child care crisis expected in the February budget. Tanya Beja, Global News. Charges have been laid in connection with a shooting on the Delta-Surrey border. It happened November 23rd in the Royal Heights area at 96th Avenue and 116th Street. The victim, a 33-year-old man from Surrey, was taken to hospital. 27-year-old Trevor Robert McKay of no fixed address is now facing six charges.
Multiple people arrested in connection with a significant drug seizure in Abbotsford. On November 23rd, officers executed search warrants on a residence, storage lockers, and three vehicles where $46,000 in cash, weapons, drugs, and other evidence consistent with drug trafficking were seized. So far, charges have been laid against two people. We've seen some heart-wrenching stories lately about how the province decides which potentially life-saving medication is covered by provincial drug plans. And while there's increasing pressure to help people, especially children with a variety of ailments, obtain those expensive drugs, health experts say the province shouldn't be too quick to come to the rescue. Nitu Garcha explains why. BC residents Shantae Anaquad, Lilia Zaharyeva and Landon Alexa each have three very different stories, but all with the same struggle for access to expensive medication not covered under Pharmacare. Seeing a disease like that take over your child's body is really hard. Anna Quad recently became the first BC resident to get Solaris, which can cost up to $750,000 a year, publicly funded. Hers, one of many emotional appeals for access to drugs for rare diseases. People may think it's easy. Pressure the politicians and they'll give in and have the politicians make decisions about what drugs get prescribed, what drug gets supported in British Columbia. But health experts like Alan Castle say rather than on the province, the pressure should be applied to the drug companies who are extorting uh, the situation and using these vulnerable patients to try to attack the government. I, I think that's uh, unconscionable. The medications require approval through the Common Drug Review. Experts say some of the drugs that have come to market have recommended discounts of well over 50% of the list price. In some cases, 90% of what the manufacturer is asking for. Drug companies like Vertex say huge research and development investments are made to bring the medications to market. But the details of those R&D costs are heavily guarded, according to a UBC public health expert. The literature is full of confidentially disclosed information that only select individuals have been able to have a look at in terms of estimating the R&D costs that manufacturers spend on drug development. Castles accuses drug manufacturers of using heartbreaking stories as a tool to skip the federal review process and force negotiations with the province. The emotional appeals can go wrong. And in fact, sometimes people who believe that the drug might be life-saving can actually be life-threatening. Nitu Garcha, Global News, Victoria. BC's remote avalanche control system is ready for avalanche season. The Ministry of Transportation has installed five new remotely activated avalanche control stations in the Three Valley Gap area west of Revelstoke. Technicians will be able to set off explosions on a 24-hour basis using an app rather than dropping the charges by helicopter, as was done in the past. This $2.3 million investment is expected to reduce the length of highway closures for avalanche control by half. Back it up to the spray paint. Roy Moore fights his way to the polling booth while Alabamans wrestle with their conscience. What's at stake in a vote the whole world is watching? Coming up on the News Hour. And Kim Kardashian is a fan, but is the uh, vampire facial for you the beauty procedure that's not for the squeamish? Coming up later. But first, a new neon sign in Vancouver is reigniting the conversation about public art. And it has many wondering about its enigmatic question. Ted Chernecki reports. <laughs> It's been three decades since Bobby McFerrin told everyone, Don't worry, be happy. 
Don't worry, be happy. They were words to live by, but fast forward and there seems to be plenty to worry about. Or is there? That's the question that's being asked of everyone who notices Vancouver's latest work of art. Worried about what? Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. That's a no. It's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of money for sign. I don't know if it's a warning or anything. Or <laughs> the artist behind this spent 18 months as an artist in residence for the city of Vancouver. He sat through countless sustainability meetings where staff kept asking that question. Should we be worried about this or that? A question like this, it's kind of like, um, maybe it begins with a yes or no, but it kind of like leads into, I think, a much bigger narrative about how we feel about being in the city. The question begs an answer, and the fact the display frames the False Creek shoreline, it makes one worry most obvious. Everyone under the age of 30 seems to worry about the same thing. I just think it's a good question, especially if you live in Vancouver or trying to find a place to live in Vancouver. If you don't have a place to live here, you should be worried, I guess. It's kind of like framing the city skyline, which is interesting because housing is such an issue. And of course, should you be worried about the $100,000 the city paid for it? The artist did spend all those hours at sustainability meetings. That in itself might make it a bargain. And it is working as a conversation trigger. This scene captures a lot of, I think, the the tension points, as well as being really close to the water and connecting to sea level rise and those kinds of challenges that, you know, we'll have to face over the coming decades. And money was spent to power the neon sign to further illuminate whatever issue one thinks one should or should not worry about. Tension at Global News. Some special deliveries are going out today to single moms around the Lower Mainland. assembly line of volunteers spent the morning putting together care packages for single mother families in Metro Vancouver. Each bag weighing 50 pounds. Well, that's why you work out. Give me a workout. (laughs) Fill to the brim with food, toiletries, and some special treats. In all, 40,000 pounds of supplies will be delivered to 825 families across Metro Vancouver. Every mother wants, you know, to raise happy, healthy children. And, and with nothing, it's, it's a really challenging um, situation. And, and our province and our city have a daunting number of children living in poverty, many who are being brought up by single mothers. And some families during this time of the year struggle. You know, I'm a single mom of two kids, and it's hard. They just have me. You know, so it's, it's amazing when somebody comes and gives you something. It just, it makes your heart feel good. That, yeah, you, that was a great thing to be a part of Yeah, this it really was, and thanks to all the volunteers who came out. Yeah, good job. Great way to get into the holiday spirit, and here's another one. Tomorrow is the Christmas Wish Breakfast. Favorite time of the year around here. Paul Hasem and Sonia Sunger joining us now. Live from the Convention Center, a new location this year, guys, but not far from the old location. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's a little bit different this year, but, you know, the basics are still the same. It's actually the 30th annual Christmas Wish Breakfast, and we're inviting all of you to come down here and to join us. Everyone in Vancouver, you're welcome. (laughs) Come join us. Yeah, you mentioned, Sophie, we're changing things up a little bit this year. Just going to bring the camera over here, and this is why. So years past, we've been in the foyer. This year, we have the entire ballroom. Yes, a lot of space here, so we need all of you to come down, bring an unwrapped toy or a cash donation or even a gift card. As you know, in years past, we like to get that pile of toys pretty much up to that ceiling there. 
So we need all of you to join us and they get something yeah, in return. They get breakfast and breakfast is always warranted around here. We don't have a single present right now on the tree, so that needs to change. We're going to be here broadcasting from 5 a.m. to 9 a.m. The doors open at 6 to 9 and uh, we're normally in bed by now. Yeah, so <laughs> We'll get some sleep okay. tonight, but you know the great thing about this is you don't need an invitation. No. Just come on down, bring a present. As you said, the Christmas spirit is alive and well and this is just such a, a great way to see all of that in the community. Yeah, should be a whole lot of fun. All right, back to you, it. Sophie and Chris. All right, thanks, guys. So the Convention Center East, which is right. just down the stairs from uh, the Pan Pacific, which is where the event is usually held, but just so everyone knows. That's right. Normally, you'd ride the escalator mm -hmm. up. You don't have to do that this year. Stay on the, on the main level. Yeah, exactly. All right, we'll see you down there tomorrow morning. Well, when a storm hits and the power goes out, most of us hunker down, waiting for the juice to start flowing again. But for BC Hydro, it's all hands on deck. And as Aaron MacArthur reports in this exclusive behind-the-scenes look, it takes some specialized training to deal with disaster. It's got to be a record for the most deaths in Israel. <laughs> in every kind of weather imaginable, at any time of day, a power outage means somebody has to go out to fix it. Nice work, boys. For Powerline technicians, this is more than just a job. If it were easy, everyone would do it. Not everyone is willing to sacrifice the time away from their friends, the time away from their family to go and ensure that the power stays on for everyone else in the province. What else do we need to wear when we're doing this? Because this is a simulated live exercise. Our low voltage rubber gloves. For the most recent intake, 700 applicants fought over 18 spots at BC Hydro's training facility in Surrey. The apprentices spend four years in the classroom working on full-scale mock-ups. We're going to just use them to help us do the work and make it a lot safer for us. And then out in the yard before they're certified to work on power lines across the province. You're in a high hazard environment. It's physical, it's mentally challenging. The weather is not always ideal. So you're really working with uh, good men and women out there that are highly trained. Because mistakes on the job can be life-threatening, the attrition rate is quite high. Very few people make the grade. For the apprentices and pre-apprentices, it's a chance they're willing to take. This is definitely a career for me to stay in for the rest of my life. Uh, I'm willing to put my heart and soul into uh, uh, going out at night and uh, making sure the lights stay on for everybody at home. Being a lineman, or woman, takes guts, skill, and intense training. Next time the lights do go out, think about who's up on the pole trying to turn them back on. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Rubbing salt in the wounds of anyone in B.C. still waiting for ride-sharing. Toronto now has a second choice. Lyft joins Uber in T.O. today, its first expansion outside the United States. Users can now request a ride on demand in the Lyft app uh, and get a car within minutes anywhere within the GTA. And if there's a difference in price and stuff, yeah, for students, it's great. We're trying to save money. Uber's arrival in Toronto five years ago, if you're curious, sparked protests by taxi drivers, but the city council there introduced rules last year to allow Uber to operate legally. 
Meantime, Uber has revealed how many Canadians were affected by its worldwide data breach announced just last month. Uber says 815,000 Canadians were involved in the hack that included names, email addresses and cell phone numbers. But Uber says it has found no indication that location history, credit card numbers, bank account numbers or dates of birth were downloaded. The latest results in that closely watched special U.S. Senate election in Alabama show controversial Republican candidate Roy Moore with a slight lead over Democrat Doug Jones, but it's still too early to call. The vote considered to be both a test of Moore, who has been dogged by allegations of sexual misconduct, and of Donald Trump, who threw his full support behind him. In an already surreal Senate race, today on a horse named Sassy, Roy Moore rode into a firestorm to cast his vote. It's a very important race for our state and the future of our country. Brushing off questions of a congressional ethics investigation if he wins. We'll take those issues up when we get to the Senate. At a rally last night, Moore's wife Kayla fiercely defended her husband against accusations of anti-Semitism news would tell you that we don't care for Jews. One of our attorneys is a Jew. The question tonight, how the allegations of sexual misconduct with teen girls, which Moore has denied, will affect turnout among his conservative base. Judge Roy is a good Christian man, and all this bull crap that's going on is nothing but bull crap. Everybody feels great. His Democratic opponent, Doug Jones, in a frantic scramble to get African-American voters and moderates to the polls. And we feel very confident of where we are. On social media, the hashtag Dear Alabama trending. People across the country urging the state to reject more. NBA legend and Alabama native Charles Barkley with this plea. At some point, we got to stop looking like idiots to the nation. Ashley Denny is a suburban Republican. Today, with her two young daughters in tow, she voted Democrat. You know, this is Alabama in the spotlight, and I think we need to make a... um, a decision that is honorable. Other voters conflicted. Do we write in or uh, uh, not vote? I'm not really sure. I'm just disgusted with the whole situation. Meantime, Donald Trump ignited another firestorm with his new tweet war, this time taking on New York Senator Kristen Gillibrand, who called for his resignation over sexual assault allegations uh, from a number of women. Trump tweeted early this morning that Gillibrand would come to his New York office, quote, begging for campaign contributions and would, quote, do anything to get them. Gillibrand responding by calling that a sexist smear and tweeting back at Trump that he won't silence her or, quote, the millions of women who've gotten off the sidelines to speak out about unfitness and shame, the unfitness and shame, rather, that you've brought to the Oval Office. The suspect in yesterday's attempted suicide bombing in the New York subway system posted a message to Donald Trump before the attack. Just hours before surveillance video captures 27-year-old Akayad Ullah detonating a pipe bomb strapped to his body, he posted, Trump, you failed to protect your nation. Ullah was the most seriously injured in the blast and has told police he was prepared to die for ISIS. Ullah is a Bangladeshi who has been living in the United States as a lawful permanent resident since 2011 and appears to have no criminal record. He also reportedly has a wife and a six-month-old baby boy. 
in Health Matters tonight, yet another mind-boggling advance in 3D printing that sounds like science fiction. Researchers at the University of Alberta are the first in the world to take a huge step toward printing functional human organs. Sue Lingo explains how. The material is shaped like a living thing, a leaf. More importantly, it behaves like a living thing, reacting with its environment. You will see bubbles coming out of the leaf, uh, indicating that it is splitting the water and generating hydrogen. Those tiny bubbles have big meaning. University of Alberta engineers have successfully printed a biological molecule that actually functions. It's an important step toward one day printing human tissue or even organs for transplant. And then you can print it just like that and you will get a structure that when you put it with cells or you when you implant it our body will feel that it's just the natural thing that it already has that could mean no need for donors and no rejection it's called 4d printing with the fourth dimension being function and this edmonton team is the first in the world to accomplish it here we're printing a knee meniscus the meniscus is cartilage in the knee if it's torn patients often need a transplant the u of a is on the verge of printing one with human cells that can withstand the pressure of human bones and you can see how flexible it is their patented hydrogel material can bend and may eventually be an effective and inexpensive expensive alternative to donor tissue. I can custom make my organs and I can um, do it in a cheaper version. If you fail also, you can make it more. Labs around the world are racing to print functional human organs like hearts and lungs. Right now, this team may be in the lead and it's hoping to stay there. I'm very excited and glad I will keep working hard on this to make it happen. And a Canadian doctor has reopened a gender-based can of worms, coming to the conclusion that the man flu really is a thing. Dr. Kyle Sue in Newfoundland studied available research going back more than a century and found evidence that the flu actually does affect men more. One particular 10-year study from the U.S. found that men have higher rates of flu-related deaths compared to women. Another study out of Hong Kong found that men were more likely to be admitted to hospital because of the flu. And he also found evidence that females are more responsive to flu vaccines than men. But yes, some do still do it for sympathy. <laughs> I'm quite certain of that. Do you know from experience? I know, I know a little bit from experience. <laughs> Jane, can you call my mom? Oh my goodness, oh, she's rolling her eyes right now. <laughs> Just reminiscing with meteorologist Christy Gordon, who joins us now about last winter. And man, are we getting off easy so far this year? That's right. So far, we're still early in the game here. We can't uh, count our chickens before, before they hatch. Now, when we had uh, beautiful sunshine again today, it was so nice to see that. Although there was still a fog advisory for the east coast of Vancouver Island, tough to break out of it in areas like Comox. We have two more days of this big upper level ridge. And then, everyone, you have to bring out your umbrella. We're right back into rain. Now, it won't be heavy rain, but we certainly will be unsettled. So uh, temperatures today warmed up to about uh, 6, 7 degrees across the region. We are seeing some high-level cloud from a system that's driving into the North Coast region. A few isolated showers across Vancouver Island. Otherwise, just some cloud cover. The dominant pattern is still this big upper-level ridge for southern BC. But on Thursday night, this is going to shift out of the region. That will be the first time in 12 
12 days that we've seen rain across the region. And we will see that on and off for a good number of days. And it looks like, by the way, off in the long distance, we were looking at a big drop in temperature. So starting Tuesday leading up into Christmas, temperatures may get pretty cold. Doesn't necessarily mean snow at this point, but that's what we'll be tracking pretty closely in those days because there is that potential with the cold air. And we'll let you know. All right. So this is your forecast for tomorrow. So periods of rain across the north coast, windy conditions as well. You'll see that overnight as well. Into the interior regions, Prince George, Quinnell, into areas like Valmont and down through Williams Lake. A few isolated flurries overnight and early tomorrow morning, but dry through the day tomorrow. Across the south, the plan is the same that you've had for a number of days now with a valley cloud, cooler temperatures below, warmth and sunshine higher up. Whereas the south coast, we will see a chilly morning with fog, but we're not going to see as much frost. Temperatures overnight tonight only dropping down to about three degrees, and we'll see that again tomorrow night. So not as much frost, but we will see the fog and then sunshine through the afternoon hours as we warm up to about seven degrees, may see eight in a few areas, and we hold that pattern for two days. Then we'll see rain Thursday night. It eases off to just a chance of showers Friday, but we will be unsettled right through into early parts of next week, and it looks like after that come Tuesday, that's when we'll see the drop in temperature. Happy birthday to Marie Luchak and Pascuzo as well. Happy birthday to Son Yao, Cam, and Bertha Schmidt. So four ladies celebrating birthdays tonight. Congratulations. Another spectacular fog shot. This one from someone who went to my high school, Michael Bjorge. Thanks so much for that. Oh, the friends sending the photos in. That's now. right. Good. It's a All good right. one. Thanks, Christy. Travelers at Tokyo's Haneda Airport might feel like, like like they've taken a trip into the future. Reborg X is a patrol bot that scans its environment looking out for suspicious objects. Officials are testing it ahead of the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. It keeps working even when the terminal is closed. And there's another robot engineered to help travelers with their heavy luggage. All you have to do is place your suitcase on top and it follows you at your walking pace. The airport is testing the robots until February, and if they perform well, the bots will welcome visitors to the 2020 Summer Games. Sorry we didn't see the other robot, but we'll talk to the editor about that later. The guy following the robot seemed a little stern. Yeah. The human seemed the hu- more stern yeah. than the robot. Robot's happy. Mm-hmm. The human, not so much. Hey, three months after Oscar-winning actress Kate Winslet gave a major shout-out to a North Vancouver donut shop, she was back yesterday afternoon. Honey's Donuts posted this picture of Winslet posing with her new shirt that reads, Keep calm and eat a Honey's Donut. She raved about BC and Honey's Donuts back in September at the Toronto Film Festival. It's not known if she's in BC for work right now or for a vacation. She just came for donuts. Nice to have her back, no matter the reason. Yeah, Yeah. She came for the donuts. Yeah. So I heard the word, words, vampire facial. It's different than Botox. It's different than filler. It's something new. And I have to warn you, this story has needles and a little bit of blood. So if you don't like needles and a little bit of blood, turn away. Otherwise, here we go. Let's learn about vampire facials. Is it possible the fountain of youth is actually running through your veins as we speak? That's the theory behind the vampire facial. The platelets from a vial of your own blood are used to help rejuvenate the skin on your face. Basically, uh, take it out from this tube and then we'll put it on a, on a micro-needling device and then we'll just inject it into her skin. 
And this is how they inject it. With a needle gun. This is a relatively new idea, so the benefits are not definitive yet. But we do know it's specific to the skin only. I really don't see it being used for the treatment of um, hollowing around the eyes or nasolabial folds. I know it's been marketed for that. I personally don't believe that it works for that. But I think if you're using it to improve the quality of the skin, to rejuvenate the skin, I think it works well in conjunction with, with microneedling. That's why it's called the vampire fish. Yeah, well, I can get that, yeah. <laughs> Are you good, Marlene? I'm great. Really? Yeah. That's good. Now, closing your eyes through a vampire facial is probably a pretty good idea because blood will be drawn. Actually, a little, a little bit of blood needs to happen, which means that it's actually, it's going, actually to the, working. going to the depth that I want it to go, right. which is kind of in the mid-dermis. Right. Do you see the results fairly quickly? You know, that's a very good question. I think the jury is out. It's not 100% uh, sort of confirmed that, you know, for some people they say it works beautifully, others say it doesn't work. And what does Marlene, our patient, think? You've done this before? One time. And did you notice a difference? Yes, definitely. What difference did you notice? Uh, smoother, less rosacea. How you doing, Marlene? Good. And it's getting more popular. Despite the fact vampire is in its Vamp name. It's a very seductive term, I think, because vampires are supposed to live very long lives and uh, they're supposed to be youthful and remain young forever. You can't wash your face right away because you want sort of the, the platelets to work their way in. There's Kim Kardashian. So she does it. She does it. Taking a selfie. This is, this is the Instagram. She's been doing it for a few years. This was done in 2013. Wow. She's so. been doing it for a few years. Wow. Can yeah. We look. Are you looking away? Can we look yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't like needles going into me. It was all I could do to stand there and watch <laughs> millions sure. of needles or however many. So you didn't watch. try it then? I didn't try it. Squire, go. Okay, I will. <laughs> Travis Green is an old poker player. Seriously, he is. Look it up. He won just over $385,000 playing poker. And you can tell the way he handles questions about his team, he sometimes feels the need to be coy, to hide his cards, kind of like bluffing. He also doesn't feel the need to panic or give in to emotion. Now, the emotional thing to do with Bo Horvat and Sven Berchi hurt would be to dress anyone who remotely shows a scoring touch, like Nikolai Godolbin has in the minors. But last night against Winnipeg, he didn't play. Will he play tomorrow against Nashville? Will the coach finally show us his cards? Let's find out. For Nikolai Goldobin to get into the Canucks lineup on a full-time basis, he's going to have to earn it. Because being an offensive threat doesn't override the risk of being a defensive liability. That may sound counterintuitive for a team that's winless in three and having trouble scoring goals. But it's these little things in his game which have a big impact at the NHL level. I always play away from a puck. I know I say that a lot, but it's different. How you track a puck, how you back check, how you protect a puck in your own zone, uh, the pace that within you play the game when you don't have the puck. Goldobin was ripping up the minors when he was called up, yet he's barely got a sniff here in Vancouver. We've seen glimpses of his offensive potential, but his game hasn't progressed enough at both ends of the ice for the coach's liking. For a young guy who's grown up thinking offense 24-7, the big picture at the NHL level has to be bigger than the net he's trying to fill. Got his own rebound. 
and Nikolai Goldolman has his first of the year. We've all been in hockey like more than 15 years, so it's all about instincts. You feel where's the puck and you feel where you can make a play. You know, his opinion of working sometimes and my opinion of working are sometimes a little bit different. But uh, I think he's made progress. I like Goldie. I like him as a person, as a young kid that wants to play. Uh, and when he gets in, it'll be because we think it's the right time for him and for the team. You know, we don't know what Goldie's going to be. We don't know if Goldie's going to be a, a 10-goal scorer, a 20-goal scorer, a 30-goal scorer. And I, I will tell you that there's not many players in the game that take shortcuts. Big bounce. <laughs> Zach Cassian, the former Canuck. Oilers against Columbus. Now, the way the Oilers have played this year, you think this might be a good one for Columbus to win. They're at home. But look at this. This is the Oilers we thought we would see this year. Nice passing and Zach Cassian with the goal. one nothing for Edmonton. Now Ryan Nugent Hopkins. This is Bobrovsky they're up against. 2-0 for the Oilers. And then son of Brian, nephew of Jim, Matt Benning. He scores. 3-0 for the Oilers. What up with this? Oilers, McDavid, and Lucic. Yes. This is all the dreams that the Oiler fans had in the summer coming real. 7-2 final over Columbus. When the BC Lions re-signed Manny Arsenault to a one-year deal yesterday, it opened the door for them to make a trade, and it's a pretty good trade. It's one that'll help their defense. Today, the Lions acquired defensive lineman Gabriel Knapp from Montreal. He's been with the Alouettes for four years. He's going to help the Lions pass rush. They didn't do enough last year to harass opposing quarterbacks. In order to get Knapp, they had to give up receiver and kick returner Chris Williams, who never really found his footing in B.C. Now, he has an excuse. He started the year injured, recovering from a knee problem. He only played nine games. When he did play, he just didn't seem to get used very much, likely because the Lions were already rich in receivers. 415 yards, 38 catches. That's a career low, just one touchdown. He runs fast, but his career as a B.C. Lion was actually much quicker than his feet. Well, they named the new inductees to the BC Sports Hall of Fame today. Going in our former Major League pitcher, Ryan Dempster, a World Series champion with the Red Sox in 2013. Cliff Ronnie, of course, we know him from the Canucks and the New Westminster Bruins. Former BC Lion, Glenn Jackson, Olympic gold medalist, Marielle Thompson from ski cross racing. Para-alpine skier, Josh Duick, also a gold medalist. In the builders category, Tom Johnson, Alex McKechnie, and Rob Schick. The 1991 men's national rugby team. Chris was cut from that team before they did anything. And Tony Gallagher in the media category. And Alex Nelson, who won the Bennett Award. He has coached soccer for years and been involved in the North American Indigenous Games. Now, for all the inductees I mentioned, the honor is overwhelming. I started playing football when I was 10 years old in South Vancouver. And to get to this stage uh, so many years later, to be recognized is a, a huge, huge honor. As I'm, I guess goosebumps all over myself right now just thinking about it. I feel overwhelmed, a little, uh, quite, quite humbled by just to be selected, just to be, even, to, to be nominated, selected, and to be inducted is quite special. This is right up there because it, it ties me with the guys that I, I spent so much time traveling the world with and at such special times and after all these years come back together with them and have something that bonds us again after all this time is very, very special. It means a very great deal. It means a job well done and that the province recognizes it and the people here at the hall recognize it. And um, I wasn't always wrong. And with Tony in, that means Brian Burke did not get a vote. <laughs>
Way to go, clo- Tony. The closest you and I will ever get to it is being up on stage at the podiums, handing out some of those awards. That's, we'll be emceeing. That's close enough for... An Alberta family is about to have the best Christmas ever reunited with their beloved pet that somehow ended up in Metro Vancouver. Frankie the Pitbull was found wandering around Langley. How he got there is anyone's guess, but he's getting back home thanks to the Langley Animal Protection Society and a little-known organization of truckers. Brad the Pitbull enjoys a few more minutes in Langley before heading back to Alberta and regaining his true identity. You see, Brad was just a temporary name given to him after he was found by a passerby wandering down a street in late November. Using his tattoo, the Langley Animal Protection Society uncovered his real name and a mysterious journey from Alberta. So the staff thought to check in Alberta and were able to match his tattoo to a clinic, called the clinic, got the owner's information, gave her a call and found out that the dog had been missing since July. Owner Ashley Power was in hospital last summer when Frankie was lost by a friend near Jasper. She had given up hope of ever seeing her therapy dog again and was shocked to get the call from Langley. My life has been turned (laughs) upside down. I'm just, I'm so overjoyed. My baby's coming back. (laughs) This is Frankie. Next chapter, how to get him home to Spruce Grove, enter an organization called Furry Hobos and Highway Heroes. There's a bunch of us uh, drivers on the road that have volunteered our time and we pick up the dogs and they may have to jump into a few different trucks to get out here, but um, we get them all across the country. It's it's free charge. So Frankie will be riding shotgun with Scott back to Alberta, but there's still that big question. How did the lost dog ever make it all the way to Langley and where was he for months? If he could only talk, I'm sure he's got an interesting story. I just want him in my arms and I'm never going to let go. He's not going to be leaving my sight (laughs) for the rest of his life. (laughs) Ted Field, Global News. Read for the road there, too.